Publishing for Profit podcast is brought to you by Ghostwriters and Co. Earn more money by publishing better content and learn how to increase your thought leadership so you can build your brand. Head over to ghostwritersandco.com for more information. That's ghostwritersandco.com. And now, your host, Joel Mark Harris. Hello, and welcome to the Publishing for Profit podcast. This is Joel Mark Harris, your host. Today, we talked to Hussein Halak, a serial entrepreneur who grew up in Syria, moved to Dubai, where he started several companies. Uh, he ran an ad agency that had several multi-million dollar clients. He moved to Vancouver, uh, which is where I met him, and now he primarily works with startups to help improve their performance. Uh, we have a great conversation. It's always fun to talk to Hussein about a lot of things, including growing up in Syria, some, his, some of his successes, a little bit of his failures, what he's learned along the way. So hopefully you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Publishing for Profit podcast. Today, I have a very exciting guest, Hussein Halak, who is a serial entrepreneur, speaker, and um, an author now. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Hussein. Thank you for having me. Yeah, cool. Um, so I want to start... Uh, so Hussein is from Syria, and it's a place that we just know by the news reports. But can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in Syria and what your childhood uh, in particular was like? Um, it, I would say I can't compare it to other, any other childhood. I can't say it's a normal childhood or non-normal childhood because it's, um, it's different. That's what I could say. Is, uh, uh, I, I think there are three phases in my childhood. One that is uh, the happy, nice childhood where everything was nice. Syria is a, um, generally a very liberal place um, in, uh, compared to the rest of that, that part of the world, especially in the... 70s when I when I when I was growing up very uh, 70s early 80s uh, so I grew up we had uh, my parents um, were employees of uh, like different things my mom was a teacher my dad was an employee of the government and uh, everyone works for the for government in in Syria uh, in one form or way because it's um, almost it owns everything in the country so. Um, yeah, we they it was good money. Uh, we they had parties all the time. Um, uh, we had good fun. What else can I say? Uh, and then came the other part of my I wouldn't say well it's early ch late childhood kind of early teens uh, where we um, we had sanctions in Syria and uh, we used to stand in line to kind of get rice, sugar, and tea and. Um, there was no like the necessities of, uh, of everyday uh, kind of uh, you know life. It's it's scarce. So and then I would say it can't you can't consider it childhood. That's uh, I mean that's the childhood. It, it was been between being uh, at a at a time where uh, everything is available. It's a lot of fun growing up. My dad and my dad and mom having uh, a lot of parties. Uh, kind of everybody joyful and having good time in a sense and then came the other part where 
uh, I didn't know it was sanctions. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I just knew that we had uh, scarcity of money and uh, standing in line and uh, kind of fighting for food, if you say, if you wish. We, we, I, used to, I remember the, vividly the lines of kind of standing in line to get bread even and they'd be pushed around and pushing around just to get uh, uh, our, our daily bread needs kind of thing. So yeah, I lived that. That's, that's a little bit about that, kind of, that part of childhood. Mm. Um, I used to love uh, kind of play. I love toys, love Lego. Uh, my uncle lived abroad, so he would send me those toys. I don't think we could buy them from Syria at the time. Didn't, don't remember buying a lot of toys. We were, we're not that rich. So, yeah. Have, does that give you an idea? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not what you expected. It, well, it, it I didn't seemed, expect the, the question, though. But so that's... Uh, <laughs> it seems like a, a typical childhood, right? So just growing up and, uh, you know, playing with toys and wanting the new thing, right? So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, have you always been interested in entrepreneurship? Because you're... Um, you're heavily um, involved in, to, in the startup community, especially. Um, I know that you, you speak a lot of, about entrepreneurship. Your new book that we'll talk about later is about entrepreneurship. Um, has it always been a passionate uh, subject for you? No, I was, uh, well, growing up, my biggest passion was towards medicine and science. Uh, I was uh, fascinated with science, fascinated with medicine, everything that uh, I read about was about these kind of things. I think even my interest in uh, like the medical field was also about the science, I would say, about the medical field. So um, I would say uh, entrepreneurship, I didn't know what the word meant until, uh, until I think I was, it was 2003 or something. So uh, that would have been, I would say, my 30s. <laughs> Because the word doesn't exist in um, uh, in our vocabulary, in the sense that we have a word that that represents what entrepreneurship is, but it's not part of our lexicon in the Arabic language. You are uh, most of the people, especially in Syria where I grew up, we are a, a community of uh, I would say farmers and landowners. So. Uh, uh, my my grandfather was a bourgeoisie, if you wish. Uh, like he he was a landowner, um, and uh, in his mind, he's a farmer. But he was a landowner. He owned a lot of land, and uh, uh, so we had the far, we have a farming community. And then you work for the government. You're an employee of the government. You let's say work for a school, work for for a, let's say any of the institutions of the government, like the ministries. And uh, very few people were. Uh, business owners so you have small business owners who own shops and kind of you know sell some clothes and stuff like that so uh, very small and you have the large business owners who mostly worked in trade Syria is part of the Silk Road and I grew up in Damascus uh, born and raised Damascus so it's, it's a lot of that trade so trading probably is the closest to what entrepreneurship if we wish uh, was and it was more like owning a business and being a trader so it doesn't, it's not in our psyche that you, you go out and say, I want to take an idea and execute it. Mostly what, you, what ends up happening is people go into trading, like they start trading stuff, and that's their path for entrepreneurship. 
but it's not entrepreneurship as it's known in the West, where somebody has an idea and goes and builds a widget, for example. Uh, these are called inventors in uh, in our in our in our lexicon, if you wish. So I didn't have I had no idea what that is. It's kind of like fish in the sea. You don't recognize what what it's around you. You don't recognize what's missing or what's there as what it is until I was until it was I think 2003, and I was reading. Uh, when I moved to Dubai in 2003, and uh, the distinction there is that I had access, big, wider access to the internet, faster access. I remember vividly installing the two megabit uh, connection into my office. And in Syria, we had a modem, uh, 57K uh, modem, and you didn't, it didn't even operate at that speed. So it took me, let's say, six hours to get a website that is mm -hmm. three megabyte size. So you, you didn't have access to that kind of information. So when I, when I uh, in Dubai, I read voraciously online uh, because of what I found. It's like, oh, so this is what it's called, what I'm doing. So me starting ad agencies, me kind of coming up with an idea and following uh, the, I, the reason I moved to Dubai is uh, a company kind of hired uh, my my one of my startups at the time it was a online gaming start, uh, startup we used to build websites as a game and the first client that we got was the disney of the middle east if you wish mm -hmm. and uh, they acquired our company and gave me a position in dubai and that's how i ended up in dubai so i learned about this i was like oh this is called entrepreneurship so this is what i am <laughs> so that was kind of a weird thing because obviously compared probably compared to your child and you'd know you would know what an entrepreneur is you have people you look up to i didn't know what an entrepreneur is i'm just like hey this is uh this is who i am and so I, I guess i am an entrepreneur then so that's how that's how my relationship kind of with entrepreneurship i always wanted to do stuff and i pers pursue them and do them basically that's how i built my companies and uh, then I got to, found out, to find out that this is called entrepreneurship. And then I started reading because uh, I grew up studying uh, engineering and uh, there was no, there's not, nothing you can take to kind of, we don't have business administration. We don't have, we have the, uh, what is it? It's called the University of Trading. Just to tell you how trading is actually a big deal. We don't have university, uh, we don't have a, a business administration in our university. The Damascus University is one of the most prestigious universities in that part of the world. And we didn't have something called business. So there's no, what would you do if you get out, if you graduate from there? There's no such thing. There's trading because trading is such a big part of how, how we do. Uh, and that's basically where you study things that have to do with business, like accounting, like business administration and stuff like that. So um, that's, that's, kind of a weird way of how, how, how our relationship with entrepreneurship. And that's why you don't see a lot of entrepreneurship coming out of there um, in, in the same, let's say, scale as you see, for example, in Vancouver, uh, Canada, because it's not part of the psyche. It's not part of what you do. You don't go up and say, oh, I can be an entrepreneur. I can be this. I can, it can be a doctor, a lawyer, a trader, an accountant, stuff like that. And then, so was it a big shock uh, moving to Dubai? I had imagined that the um, entrepreneur community, the startup community is quite robust there, you know, with everything that's going on. So was it a big change for you coming from Syria? Um, not as entrepreneurship. I think that grew up 
that grew later on when after the dot com and obviously when I moved there, uh, there there is a community that was growing, but not as much. Dubai is known as the kind of the headquarter. It's not set up to uh, at the time in the two thousands. It's not set up to um, nurture entrepreneurship in the in the two tens and uh, like in two thousand ten and beyond. They started. Uh, kind of paying attention to that and nurturing it even more. Uh, there are initiatives, but it was way behind, let's say, what the Western world is. But the biggest shock there is number one, being paid a shit ton of money compared to what I what I was being paid in, in Syria, uh, which was not good for somebody who didn't handle money or and uh, and um, grew up in in a place where money was not. The, I mean always wanted money but it's not for the sake of money it's basically you grew up and saying what do you want to do for the world <clears throat> and what kind of impact do you want to have and since money was I, I grew up around a family that had fights around money all the time my grandfather was very rich and everybody wanted a piece of their land so my father left all of that and say I don't want any piece of that kind of like how do you say dynasty you know kind of a mm. series <laughs> kind of approach so he didn't want that so that's what I grew up around I said, okay, I want to do stuff not for the money. And then when I moved there, I got paid not a lot of money, but compared to what is in Syria, it's a shit ton of money. And I'm and I and I don't I'm not a consumerism kind of thing. Like my, the things that I bring joy to to me is going to attend a movie. So that's what I did. There's a ton of movies there, so I spent all my time. Sometimes I would attend two or three movies in one night. I didn't have a lot of friends. <laughs> It sounds like. Um, so yeah, that's that's the thing. The thing that shocked me more is also I I, I grew up around. I didn't have banking in Syria, so I never knew, uh, never had uh, a bank account, never had a credit card. Uh, so imagine in your thirties being introduced to that and a lot of money and being at the kind of the Las Vegas of um, of the Arab world. So uh, I made a shit ton of mistakes, if you wish. It's a lot, a lot of uh, wasted a ton of money, uh, made a lot of mistakes. So it was, it was a, a, a grand experiment, I would say. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And so is there any lesson that you learn from um, basically being very conservative with money and then having almost too much and then, and being overwhelmed by the entire experience? Yeah. Uh, well, it led to uh, one of probably my biggest failures is uh, launching because um, money was not the primary thing and I didn't have the proper business education, uh, which led to my interest in, in studying entrepreneurship and kind of mentoring others. Is In 2006, I launched the, uh, the leading uh, and number one, basically, uh, marketplace for Arabic art in the world. And... Uh, but I did it all wrong. So uh, the, the way I did it is I first went and, and kind of built up the marketplace, got the artists, uh, put them on a spent a ton of money building the, the market. And remember, that's 2006, 2005, 2006. WordPress was just coming out in the sense that making it available for people to build websites. Uh, unlike now, now you can build a website for, what is it, like $100. You can have the grandest website with all the bells and whistles. <laughs> At the time, it, it took me... Just to give you an idea, let's say actually $100 is a bit expensive, $30, you can get WordPress for free, even website hosting for free for six months and stuff like that, and uh, $30 for, for a theme, let's say. 
it cost me $30,000 wow. to just get started, okay? So that's to give you kind of the, the, <laughs> kind of the scale between what we have right now and at that time. So uh, at the time, we didn't have, uh, we had what we call portals, and there's a lot of, ton of access and work on it. Uh, so I spent a lot of money to get it up and running and put it out there. And one of the biggest challenges is obviously you build something that doesn't mean it has a market. So uh, because I wasn't worried about how we make money, I was worried about, I want to get my idea out there. Uh, and that's always, always the wrong thing to do. I put my idea out there and, um, and surprise, surprise, <laughs> collectors didn't want to buy art off the internet. Uh, it was a new thing, uh, even though, I mean, there are websites, but not necessarily to buy art and not necessarily to buy art that is as, as exotic as Arabic art, because in all of the Arab world, we're 300 million uh, people at the time. And uh, we, I could find, let's say, 1,200 artists. That's a massive amount of artists that's to, to, to put them there. But that's, uh, that's 1,200 artists that people couldn't have access to. So you have one day you don't have access to these artists and the other day you have access to those artists. Usually you would go to exotic, you know, uh, galleries and the galleries are the gateway to do that. And there's this whole experience of you found this artist and you paid for, for access and you paid for their painting and you collected it. Now you're just buying it offline, online if you, if you wish, or you have access to them. Collectors were not, we're not excited about this. They mm. wanted the experience of going to Christie's and bidding over a painting and paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for a painting they could get, let's say, for 30 or, or whatever. So they wanted that experience. That's the whole thing. They didn't want to save money. They didn't want that kind of access. They wanted the restricted access. So I didn't have any idea about that. All I had an idea about, I wanted to have art, Arabic art, be available for the whole world. So my approach to this was not um, a business approach, was I believe in this. I believe Arabic art is an important expression of the Arabic world. And I know all these artists and I want to help them. So I built this. Uh, so I ended up losing a million dollars in the process. Wow. <laughs> so, um, that's to answer your question about my introduction to having a lot of money and having a lot of access. And uh, without the frameworks, without the training, money access the right environment doesn't help you really need i mean they help a little bit but if you have the training and the and the proper frameworks and the understanding of how how you should go about it it's far better and far more important so is that where your passion for helping startups come from to a large extent yes i think in one way i'm trying to um to prevent this from happening to other entrepreneurs so i'm um uh I, I think of myself and what, could, what I could have done if I didn't go through this because uh, I know myself I'm resilient. I was lucky to have uh, the family that I have. I was lucky to have the friends that I have and the people around me that helped me through this. A lot of people don't have that um, and don't have access to that. So something like this and something even smaller, like even if you lose $20,000, $10,000, that may wreck somebody's uh, life for a while. And I'm... I grew up in a certain environment where it's, I'm very resilient in the sense that um, I bounce back really quickly. So in three years, I was uh, up and running and building startups again. I mean, 
actually in six months, I was already building another company mm-hmm. and kind of recovered and paid, uh, paid back a lot of the debts that I have and, um, and kind of recovered completely and recovered my trust in the market. Not a lot of people can do that. So, uh, and not a lot of people have the access and not because I'm special. It's just sometimes you're lucky in how you're positioned and the market situation and the people I'm surrounded with. So, um, so I, I wanted to save people from, from going through this. And also I believe that a lot of people have great ideas that they want to, that if they get it out there and they put it in practice, they can build a great company, hire great people, uh, serve the community. So, and I'm great at teaching. So what's better than someone who's studies all the time because I love reading and great at teaching and have been through the experience and teach other entrepreneurs. So, uh, and I, ha- I have the belief that if you can, you must kind of thing. So um, that, is, that is, I think, where it comes from and uh, where I'm, uh, I'm super uh, excited and, and always you know, thrilled about having the opportunity to help entrepreneurs. So that's where it comes from. The other thing that it comes from is I've seen a ton of people that, um, uh, that have ideas that never materialize. My, my dad, for example, was a writer. He wrote poetry, he wrote, uh, he wrote uh, you know, scripts for movies, and he never p- pursued his passion for several reasons. Number one, he was prevented from writing in Syria because we are a, a free country. Uh, <laughs> in quotations <laughs> marks. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he was prevented from writing because he, was, he wrote something in his private memoirs uh, about own private uh, you know, journals about the president, kind of a joke. So his, uh, fr- one of his friends, that's something that happens in Syria a lot, unfortunately, is one of his friends go, went and told the, uh, the secret service or the Muhabarat, we call them in Syria, about him. So he was dragged about to, thrown in j- to be thrown in jail for 16 years. We don't see him. He was saved from that by the connections that my uncle had. But the, um, the give was, you're never gonna write any, like in your life, you're, you're, you can't publish here, something like that. So he felt he couldn't pursue his, his dream and his passion. And I saw how that broke a person because um, I saw him, he's always someone who's very talented, very creative, but he was never able to share that creativity. I read his poetry. I got to read some of his work when I go and went into his, his stuff and inspired me, but I saw how much that could that inspire other people. So that's one of the things that also uh, that I saw what it does to a person's spirit when they're not unable to pursue their ideas, to pursue their dreams, to kind of go ahead and experiment with something, whether they fail or not, doesn't matter, but just go after that. Um, yeah. So that's, that's the other thing. And I hate having a job. <laughs> uh, I hate it with a passion. I hate other people having a job. Now there's a job and there's a job in the sense that, I do believe that we need to move to a place where jobs are, are different quality of jobs, where people are able to pursue their creativity within their job and to give more of themselves and to experience themselves to the, to the maximum of, uh, ability. So in order to do that, you need to be trained to be an entrepreneur, basically someone who inside is a mover and shaker. Um, so at least you have those skills. So if you want to, you can't. So that's, these are some of the motivators of why I pursue this. I think those skills are super important, especially now with COVID-19, you know, people are forced to be creative. They're forced to 
look outside the box and see, okay, how can I make money in other ways that um, I haven't traditionally done so? Um, yeah. But I want to go back. So, to, so your father was a writer. How did that inspire you to write? And did you get your passion? Because you're, you know, obviously very creative and, um, you know, great writer. Uh, I've read lots of your stuff. Uh, Let me puff that... off my, my, my chest a little bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> so is, is that where you get your writing chops from? It definitely helped knowing that my dad is a writer. But I think one of the biggest things that uh, that inspired me when I was studying is I was I was probably a creative person. I, I believe everybody's creative. But to a certain extent, I, I, I had an affinity for creative things. And I, I look where the spotlight is. So, uh, so growing up, I, I, I crave the spotlight. I crave to be in the spotlight. So whatever it is, I sang, I'd be on stage. I'll, uh, I'm, always, I'm always volunteering to anything. So I'm, my wife always tells me, you're like, you raise your hand before you hear the end of the question. Who will do? And my hand will, will go up. So, um, so I had that. And I think one of the biggest thing that you can the people that are in the spotlight in syria uh in our part of the world which i think is a is a very distinct difference than um than let's say the western world so if you look at in particular north america who are the people in the spotlight the people in the spotlight are athletes and actors celebrities um you know uh what is it reality show hosts or stuff like that you know tv hosts these are the least respected people in our community. So that is, I think, a distinct difference. The highest respected people in our community are writers, authors, people who write books, philosophers, um, thinkers, like Noam Chomsky, for example. That would be like, he will be idolized in the world. And I don't mean by the media. I mean by everybody on the street. So people would, uh, so it's kind of a, a bit of a history um, it comes from from the uh, the Arabic culture uh, before, regardless of Islam. Uh, Mecca was the like that's why they call it the Mecca of something. Mecca was mm. before Islam was uh, a place where people went to trade, where people worshipped like other idols, you know, uh, these wooden uh, statues and stuff like that. But it's also where poets from each tribe will come and compete. And instead of fighting, they would compete of who beats the other with poetry. Because the biggest thing, our, our language, the Arabic language was not a written language. So it was uh, your, you show your chops by how much you remember and how many of the complex words would you know, basically how big your lexicon is <clears throat> and how many, like how, how capable are you to communicate. So imagine that's the history. A lot of people probably don't think of, uh, of us like that. They think of Islam or whatever. Uh, so, so that's, that's where it comes from. And that's why language is very important. And everybody who has a command of language in our culture is highly, highly respected. So poets are the highest respected people. So compared, let's say the most famous poets in, in, in the Arab world are, I mean, it's not the same in the, since the 2000s and moving forward because media, you have people, you have singers or whatever, just like that. But, uh, before that, while I was growing up, my generation, if you hear of a poet, uh, poet is as, let's say, famous as, I don't know, the Rolling Stones, for example, like, or the Beatles. Those are poets at the time. Nobody would go to, you know, to a concert 
uh, to attend, you know, somebody singing. Who would, who's the idiot is going to do that? They would go attend, you would find stadiums, I mean, as far, or auditoriums that are filled to listen to a poet. So that's my fascination with language and why I love language uh, and, and why, so, because I wanted to be in spotlight and to be in the spotlight in that part, you had to have command of language. And also I grew up around a large library in our home. Uh, we were filled with libraries and we had book English and Arabic. So, um, and my fascination with English came from my love for music. So I, I listened to music uh, when I was young from Michael Jackson to rock music, to blues, to, and I wanted to sing and uh, that's how I got my accent and I love sitcoms. So combine all of those. I think when you get the comedy of a language, you get the language. So I started listening to those and reading and I had a fascination with, with uh, movies and that's how I got. Now where I got my, uh, my language in English because I write, as, uh, actually I am more expressive right now in English than in Arabic. In Arabic, I used to write a lot of poetry. I used to write more poetry because that's how I got my, my wife to, to fall in love with me. Um, but uh, the English one came from my fascination with business. Once I started reading in business and fascination of the mechanics of how you build and take an idea to execution, all of my reading, there's no writing. Uh, Arabic writing is always either poetry or politics, literature and analysis stuff like that there's no writing in business at the time when i was growing up it's of course right now we have all these translations there are people who are talking about business and stuff but when i was growing up there wasn't so there's a uh, there's a lack in that so i started reading in english and that's how one of the reasons why i grew uh, I, I strengthened my language and i became very skillful in writing because that's my fascination so that gives you an idea of uh, where the, where it comes from that's cool um we, you mentioned a while back about, um, you know, making sure that for startups that when you started your art gallery business, that um, you need to make sure that the market is there. What other common issues, problems do you see startups having um, when they obviously when they're starting out? The biggest problem that I see is definitely not having a market. You can build the greatest idea, the greatest execution, have the greatest team, the most money. If there's no market, nobody to buy, it's worthless. So I think that's always the case. Is there a market? Now, how to find out that there's a market, that's the key. Because if it's just a matter of checking, hey, there's a market, let's build it, then great. Uh, the problem is not falling into the trap of thinking there's a market. So you have to find out there is a market. There are steps to do, to do that. So number one, the idea doesn't matter. <clears throat> so you can take an idea that somebody else had. What is it? There is, um, there is somebody who looked at Craigslist. And what they did is they took um, elements of Craigslist and shown that how brilliant companies were built by copying an element of, uh, you know, Craigslist. So for example, let's say finding drivers, matching drivers with people who want to go places. That's Uber. Uh, kind of hookups of people, you know, meeting each other. That's Tinder. So it's things like that. The idea doesn't have to be novel or new. If it is, great. But that's what, not what it matters. So I see a lot of people kind of get stuck on, is this a new idea? Is this a great idea? Bad idea with great execution for a market that's always, that's always growing uh, that you can generate revenue from, that's great. That's even better. I mean, who, who in the hell would have thought that, hey, I'm going to build a company where everybody can become a taxi driver. Mm. Who would think, you know, think, oh, that's a great idea. It, and 
and it even didn't start like that. Most of the great companies that we have right now didn't start the way that it is right now. Uh, Uber didn't start as, hey, everybody can be a driver. Uh, Uber started as a company where uh, people can find drivers uh, when they're uh, outside and it's more about exclusive and high-end and kind of a replacement for limos. That's, when it start, that's where it started. And now it's like ubiquitous. So it doesn't matter what the idea is. It doesn't matter where it starts. It doesn't matter how you execute it and are you executing it for the right market. So uh, not getting stuck on the idea, testing immediately and putting it in front of customers. So what do entrepreneurs do? They uh, try to come up with the most novel idea. So they get stuck in the idea stage. They don't share it with anyone. They, they're very protective so that nobody can steal my idea. You've heard a lot. Nobody steals anybody's idea. Like an idea is worthless. Um, because an idea, if you look at the idea and you look at um, how much execution you have to do, who's, who, in their, who, who in their right mind will take your idea and execute on it for the next three to five years, maybe, they'll succeed, you know? Now, uh, was there ever a time where people stole ideas? Yeah, there is. I mean, uh, what is it? Um, Snapchat is a stolen idea. Hmm, uh, yeah, because the, the two founders that uh, created Snapchat, and there is, there is a lawsuit, uh, and the, uh, the other founder won the lawsuit and got their shares and their names. So what is it? Steven Spiegel, I think, is, the, is now the CEO of... Uh, I don't know if I'm saying his, his last name. He basically, the, the according allegedly, that he took the idea from, there were two people at the dorm uh, that came with him because he has the business mindset and said, here's the idea. And he ended up executing it on, on, uh, without them or like kind of cutting it off. I can't remember the actual story, but cut him off halfway through or basically continued without him. The same thing. I mean, uh, what is it? Mark Zuckerberg. We know the stories. Like he said, he supposedly, allegedly, he took the to the the idea from from the what is it, the so and so twins, mm, and yeah. they they even did a lawsuit and they got money from him because of that. Now, whether or not, how do you consider stealing? But the key thing here is for stealing the idea doesn't guarantee that's going to be executed and you're going to raise money from it. For every company that succeeds, there are hundreds, even thousands that fail. So. Success has nothing to do with the idea, has everything to do with the execution. Yes, if you have a, an idea that its time has come, it's the right market, and you execute well, that's great. So I think they get stuck on the idea. They don't execute as fast as possible. They don't put it in front of the customers. They're very protective. They don't share. Um, and they take too much time. Uh, that's, that's, I think, the, the problem. Uh, the, some of the problems that entrepreneurs fall into. Cool. Um, so for one of the things that i think that uh startups <laughs> have problems with is the marketing how would you recommend or how do you recommend startups market themselves especially with little or no budget they need to do content marketing a lot so one of the things that they need to do is to write excessively about the stages that they do so uh, so write about the idea write about uh, for example um, lean startup which is the book that kind of changed how uh, changed everything in, in how startups do things was started as a blog post unbounce started as a blog for a year before they became a company about how to build dining pages and all of that why is that? Because that's how you build an audience. 
So uh, we, me and you, done a lot of writing, you know, started ideas and tested and see if people are interested. Right now I'm writing my book, Unleash the Startup uh, of You. And the first thing I did is the first piece of writing, the introduction. I wrote it and I put it on online and I linked it to a landing page. I haven't, the book is still in the making, but I've put, it, put something out there. And I said to people, I'm writing this book now. Somebody can definitely take, hey, that's a good idea and they can write the book. Good for them. But the, th the key here is that they're not going to write the same book because I'm writing my own book. They're not going to know everything that I'm doing. Uh, Paolo Coelho, one of, one of his uh, books that he wrote, I can't remember the name of the book. He actually, uh, to the to opposing his publishing company, released parts of the book as they continued. I don't know if you're, I can't remember the name of the book that he did no, that. Yeah. But you heard the story, right? He released, he released parts of the book and it's like, why are you doing? People are not buy the book. People bought the book. So it's, the key thing here is if you don't have budget, you can always write. You can always take an hour or two hours and write. And you don't have to be an amazing writer. You don't have to write like the New York Times, for example. You're writing for your audience. You're writing for a certain audience that will appreciate that you're communicating with them authentically. And there's a ton of resources about writing that you can benefit from and can get you started. Um, if, you, if you're not clear on what, what are those, <laughs> send us a, uh, a few messages, me and you, and you can you can uh, you can even hire. I mean, like a like a writer to help you with uh, kind of do an interview with you and write about your story, like you're doing with me right now. Mm -hmm. So I think the key thing is that money. That's that's one of the problems that entrepreneurs have is that you don't have the money, you don't have the resources. Well, what can you do with what you have? You can still write. You have time, like everyone else. You can write, you can communicate, you can share on social media. A lot of it, the tools are free. Uh, I just uh, shared an article on Medium. You can find it on my LinkedIn. It's called The Gigantic List of Amazing Startup Resources. There's, a ton, I, there's 844 tools, resources, and articles that will help you get started no matter what your idea is. So there is that uh, that you can do, and uh, there's a ton of those online. So start with something start communicating with your audience any idea that to get you started and communicating with your audience to get you started in testing and build from there so uh, marketing starts with content identify what we call the um, uh, fire hoses of information communities like uh, product hunt if you're building something that is techy uh, hacker news uh, communities where people are there are slack channels where people congregate that have the same interest as you. And you can start communicating with them. Uh, Quora, for example, answering questions in your area of expertise. Anything that helps you stand out and build your personal brand, because you can attach that personal brand to the startup that you're doing. And that's what I think is very powerful that uh, you can get you started. Okay, so you mentioned your book. I think now's a good time to talk about it. What's, what's it about and who is it meant to help? Cool. So my book is about three things, about uh, mastering your time, building your personal brand, and becoming the leader you were always meant to be. Now, it's, it's based on the assumption that, um, uh, that I believe that everybody's meant for greatness. Now, this is not an, uh, you know, like a new age belief, uh, something like that. It's more the, it comes from, um, a belief that I built based on dealing with a lot of people. Every single one I dealt with have the capability for more. 
So they can do more, they can help more, they can add value more. But most of the time they're held back. They're held back by, uh, number one, not having the time. A lot of us have to uh, put food on the table, uh, pay the bills, all of that. So that takes time. And mostly we're using that time, uh, you know, building, uh, uh, working in a job, you know, fulfilling whatever roles that we need to do. And what I found is that 90% of people have no idea how to master their time. They have no idea how to be more productive, how to kind of manage that. So the first thing I did is I reached out to my network and instead of, you know, having opinions, like my opinions about how to, what to do with your time, I'm, I'm kind of a, 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 I obsess on how to build a great, uh, how, how to build up your productivity and be an amazing productive person. So I've, Throughout the time, I've, I've, I've read tons of books about that, but I didn't want this to be a summary of my learnings. One of the things I wanted is I wanted to, to, be, to make it more real. So I reached out to my network and I had hundreds of people respond to me and say, what are the tools and their things that they do to be more productive or that helps them manage their time better? And I took those and those are going to be the first part of the book. How do you master your time? Kind of streamed together through my writing and, uh, and with the help of my co-authors. And uh, also, I'm working with you to help me with that. So uh, to help kind of string them together, to give people some great advice, some varied advice, because what I've learned from uh, managing your productivity and managing your time is that everybody's personality is different. I, I read a ton of, the, re the reason I read a ton of them is because whenever I read one and I tried to apply it, a lot of things broke apart and uh, you know, fell apart broke down, didn't work for me. Some things worked for me. So I would take one thing from here, one thing from there. And I noticed that's the biggest challenge is that people think it's either the whole thing or nothing at all. So since I had no, no problem in kind of breaking apart things and kind of doing what I want, having that confidence, I noticed that some people do not have that confidence. So this is a way to help them. Here's what other people are using. Feel free to kind of use them as Lego and play around and, and see what works for you. So that's the first part, which if you now master your time, you can have enough time to build your personal brand. Why do you need that? Because you, you already have a personal brand. Your people already think of you certain things, uh, talk about you in a certain way, uh, associate you with certain things. And as long as uh, you don't control your brand, other people's do. But what you can do is you can shift the conversation. You can influence how people think about you. And if you can do that more uh, in a more aware and a more predetermined way and, you know, kind of having it with um, keeping it top of mind and it's, it's something that you do on a regular basis, you, you, people get to know you for a certain way and they start associating you with this, let's say, being the expert in a certain thing or being someone dependable or reliable or someone that always, uh, you know, delivers on their word, whatever it is that you think you're representing with the brand. And now they will work with you more. They will reach out to you more. And that's, I think, is very important because that's where jobs come from. That's where work comes from. That's what you associate with anything you touch. So if you write and people trust your word, for example, they'll take your writing in a certain way as opposed to somebody they don't trust, for example. So these are, that's why building your personal brand is very important. And the third thing is leadership. Why? Because our world needs leadership. We, we suck right now at leadership. If you look around at the global scene and you look at the leaders of the world, um, I mean, it's, it's pathetic. 
uh, we don't have leaders at all. A, a few years ago, 10 years ago, we had Mandela, you know, we had uh, Mother Teresa, we had, uh, uh, who else? Like, we, we had people that you can point to and say, you know what, I want to follow, I want to I wanna hear. But we're having less and less, who can you point to in the world right now, you can say, you know what, I'll follow their footsteps. We don't have to. Now, it's good and bad. The good about it is that we kind of went past the, um, the age where there's one leader that will save us all because that was never true. But we were in a, in, a, in, a, in a part of the world where a lot of people, or a, part, a time in our, our evolution where a lot of people didn't have access. Now you have more access than those people had. So if you think the platform that Mandela had, and the platform you have. You have now access with social media tools and all the tools that are out there and what you can write and you can access more than Nelson Mandela. <laughs> because you can, you, it doesn't matter that if the Times pick up, picks up, let's say, an article that you wrote. You can write on Medium and you can, you can have articles that have more reach than some of the New York Times articles. You can have a YouTube channel and you can be one of the biggest YouTubers in the world. There's nothing stopping you. So with that, comes the responsibility of where do you want to lead people? So it's more, not, it's, it's less of telling people that you have to lead and you have to be more, it's not a moral approach, but it's like causing people to question, what is the impact you want to leave in the world? And are you being, you know, conscious of that and moving towards it in a, in a, in a you know, uh, in a way that you chose rather than it was chosen for you or, you know, haphazardly happened. A lot of things will happen in your life for, by coincidence, but the things that you have a choice at, are you choosing it? So that is the, that is the arc of the, of the book. And the reason I do that is these are the key things that I, that I noticed that are, you know me, I'd, I'd like to keep things simple, three things, not, you know, a hundred things. And these are the things that I saw whenever I worked with people that made the biggest impact in their lives and caused them to make the biggest impact on the people around them. Um, now that's that's basically my book and why I'm writing it and um, what are the certain aspects of it. I think one of the things people don't think about is personal branding, and I, I'm super passionate about it. I believe it's one of the most important things that you can do. It is, but people just go to work and then they come home and they watch TV and they that's all they do. What are some things that will help build somebody's personal brand. Um, yeah, I agree with you. A lot of people don't think of personal branding because they think of branding as something that um, comes with business. For example, the word brand, let's say, you don't think of yourself as a brand. Um, they have a lack of understanding of branding. They think branding is something you create, so it requires money. They don't think of brand as something that already exists. Um, uh, so it's the lack of understanding is the one. So a brand is what people think, whether it's a company, a brand, a company's brand is what people think of that company or whether you're a person, it's what people think of you. Put simply, it's what people say about you when you're not there. That's your brand. Um, now, um, whether you like it or not, you're a brand. So people think about you things, whether you, you want them to or whether you don't want them to. So they have an opinion of you and they have, um, 
uh, they associate you with certain things, certain words. Or so maybe you are the fun person. Maybe you're the reliable person. Maybe you're always there. Maybe uh, you're someone who's maybe is negative. There's a lot of negative stuff. Oh, I can't depend on them. Or, you know, they're, they're strict or whatever it is. So they associate you with that. Now, a lot of times, a lot of these things are not articulated in the sense that if you ask somebody, what do you think of me? It's like, oh, I think you're nice. They don't think about that. They just have, the, have that going in, in their heads, in the background of their heads. So uh, the key element here is there is a brand. Uh, you don't influence it and it's there. So do you want it to serve you? Here's a question. Or do you want it to work against you? Because it's either or. There's no in between. Um, and you need it, of course, to serve you. So in order to serve you, you need to understand what it is and need to influence it. Now, there's two approaches for this. One approach is in the inauthentic approach in the sense that you want to be seen as someone who's, who, who you're not. And that will never work. It will fall apart. So we see it all the time. Um, you see it with famous people, for example. You want to find out like, hey, they project an image and then people like find out like, oh, they're not that. They're tricking us. And people have a sense we have our bullshit barometer it's been developed over thousands and thousands of years. We're very good at, at representing that. And usually it's when something is being presented as perfect, we immediately call bullshit on it, immediately. Um, so just like the perfect phone call. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever something is presented as perfect, we call bullshit on it. So, I mean, to put it simply, but more sophisticated than that is that, what do you want to yourself to be seen? So authentic way is, what are you really great at? And what, or what do you really want to, want to go after in the world? So there are several things. There's what are you, what are you are as a person? So uh, what you stand for, the things you believe in, the things you value most, things like that. And what do you want to leave uh, behind you? So a lot of what we call your legacy. So these are things that influence. And once you're clear on that, so the way to do that is to get clear first on who you are to yourself kind of like the self-image, and what, what do you want to project in the world? What do you want to leave a legacy? And once you're clear on those, then you need to actively work towards them. It cannot happen. Just because you believe something, just because you believe in being nice, that doesn't mean that you're being nice all the time. And uh, being nice all the time doesn't mean that you, you know, just helped your neighbors carry their groceries. It's not just about that. It's COVID, so avoid that. Um, uh, so it's really about how do you want to do it so once you're clear on the what what you stand for and what your morals are and why what drives you to that it's the how the how distinguish you from somebody else how you're being nice is different than how I'm being nice and just the realization that when you do an act in an authentic way you will have the following reactions there will be people who love you there will be people who hate you and there will be people who don't give a shit, okay? Now, your role is to make the people who love you love you for the right reasons, so for knowing you, not just for loving you because they like you, and make the people who don't care care, so more of the people who don't care, you know, care about you, so win them to your side, and the people who hate you, maybe you recognize them so that they know what they hate you for and they stay away. So you're not gonna win everyone. You, if you, by trying to win everyone, you're going, to be, you're going to become bland. You're going to become, you know, like the hated person by the people who truly care about you. Kind of like the difference between, what is a good example, maybe we go into politics a little bit, the difference between Obama and Bernie Sanders, for example. 
So Obama says the right things. You know, he's a great politician. If you listen to him, it's like, you're going to like him. But then if you look a little bit deeper, it's like, what did he really say? Like, for example, we have to progress. We have to do more. It's like, that sounds good. I'm going to sign up to that. But what does that really mean? As opposed to, for example, when he says, when he says everybody has to have health care. Um, everybody needs to, um, everybody, you know, I believe that everybody having health care is a right or it's a crime not to have everybody, you know, having access to, uh, let's say, higher education, let's say. And I'm going to fight for doing that, whether I'm president or not, or for something like that. Now, whether you like that or not, whether you believe in that or not, you know that person stands for something. You know where they stand. You know why you're hating him. You know why you love him. Whereas if you ask people who love and hate Obama, why you love and hate Obama, and you look at it, it's like, but like you're both right, but like there is no substance. And that is, I think, the biggest thing is the difference between saying and standing. Now, I'm not saying that Obama is all bad or, you know, but uh, he, a lot of what he says can be applied to everything. It's kind of like a Nike, you know, motto, which is just do it. You know, you can, you can apply it to anything. It's a great saying. And you can say Nike, just do it. You know, uh, Coca-Cola, just do it. You know, um, or what is a good brand of beer? Uh, or Corona, just yeah, do it. say Corona. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can, you can apply it to all of that. That's the problem with, you know, bland, you know, statements that doesn't stand for anything. So in the same way, you have to learn, it's, it's branding. That's why I think people avoid it, is that they think it's about, I don't want to lie to people. I don't want to, you know, trick people because that's what we associate. We associate with advertising, with saying the message but not delivering. Whereas true personal branding is about, what do you stand for really? And what do you execute into every day's world? And what do you, what are you got, not going to let go until the day you die? Basically. So that is uh, just to be dramatic. <laughs> All right. Let's, um, so I mentioned you're a serial entrepreneur. One of the things that you are, one of the spaces that you're working in is blockchain. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit what you're doing, um, your company and, why you're why you've stepped into this space so blockchain is for me at least is one of the most fascinating technologies that i've uh got so i told you i'm fascinated with science fascinated with technology since i was uh young for me science and technology was the same obviously when growing up i realized that a little bit different obviously so i'm more now here into technology i still love science read science a lot of times and get fascinated, kind of go down rabbit hole things. But technology uh, is fascinating for me. I keep on reading. And that's how I got into blockchain. I heard about it. At the time, I heard about Bitcoin and I heard about the financial aspect of things. And since my history, you know, a little bit now and my history with money is like, nah, this is not for me. And then I got to know, um, then I got to know what uh, blockchain uh, actually uh, does for people and how the technology works through a workshop. So I attended a workshop because I was in Launch Academy and I was fascinated. It's like, this is a Mac, it's a great technology. So I started reading and the more I read, the more dumb I felt <laughs> because it's such a complex technology that um, it was hard. It, it took me like several months to understand a few things. And because of the content explosion, there's a lot of, a lot of fluff content out there about the technology that doesn't deliver real substance. 
So um, started reading, started learning, and, and got fascinated. And I decided to build a company that uh, we don't te technically do blockchain technology, but what we do is we uh, teach about blockchain technology and then grew to teach about uh, emerging technologies. And that's Next Decentrum. Uh, and built uh, several courses for blockchain. One of them is on Udemy right now. That's a small course just to help people kind of get in. Um, into the world of blockchain, and I made it tried to make it simple, make it simple, visual, simple, and it's not, it wasn't an easy task. It's a very difficult thing, um, and now working on building larger courses to help people learn the technology, mostly because of my fascination with it, but also because I think it's it opens up the doors for a lot of people to um, to participate in the upcoming wave. Blockchain technology, just like the internet, in the sense that it's a massive wave. Um, but it's not like, let's say, AI, where even though it's been developed and growing for a long time right now, but it's, it's right now everybody's AI, 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 you know, and uh, uh, it's a complex technology, but if you learn it, it doesn't open up a lot of things for you in the sense that you can execute, build something in AI, but it doesn't expand your understanding of anything. So let's say you build, you build artificial intelligence to something, uh, that makes that thing do the, the task, let's say, faster, better, cheaper, um, more complex, let's say, uh, but you forget about it. Uh, whereas in blockchain is really a way of thinking. So it's a framework of thinking, um, not the speed of thinking. AI is more, let's say, think about it, the speed of thinking. So once you achieve the speed of thinking, you're not thinking about it. But a way of thinking changes the whole world, changes how you see the world. So a way of thinking about uh, blockchain is a way of thinking, and, and it's in particular decentralized way of thinking, where instead of you know collecting all your data in one place, you now can decentralize and give it to other people. Well, then, what what does that do with security? What does that do to access? How do you do governance, for example? Like, if you think about it, uh, how do you guarantee that a government, uh, like the U.S. government or Canadian government, has real representation? How do you guarantee that certain contracts that were promised and signed gets executed regardless of the, and, and limit the ability of people of getting out of the contract or kind of weaseling their way out of it? Uh, guarantee that people get paid. Um, all of these things are very, very hard problems because it include the human element and includes the element of trust. Can you, can you execute that and turn it into code? It's a very, very you know, clear cut execution uh, elements can you do that? And that's a very, very hard problem to solve. And blockchain sector, which is decentralized, you know, technology uh, plays in that area, plays in the area of moving trust from a human thing that is enabled by technology to something that is completely technology driven. Uh, a good example of that, kind of to explain the jargon that I just threw at you, um, is if you think of money, right now money, to give money to someone, you have to, let's say you've done a job for me. Let's say um, I hire you to do, let's say my marketing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a uh, ton of, let's say articles and we agree on a payment. I have to receive those articles, uh, verify, and then let's say I pay you. And I know I'm paying you because uh, let's say in person, it's a cash payment. I know I'm paying you, I can recognize you, you're the person who delivered me. So trust relies in my understanding of that trust. Uh, and in your understanding that, yeah, this is what we agreed and all that. How do you try, if you put that online, 
if I want to send you the payment, I have to know what your bank account is and I have to do it through my bank. You can't do it. You won't accept it through, let's say, Hussein coin. Like, what is Hussein coin? I don't want to accept Hussein <laughs> coin. Who uses Hussein coin? You want dollars, for example. You want to use uh, the technology that exists. You, don't, you won't accept Hussein pay. You won't send me payment or accept payment on Hussein pay. You won't give me your details on Hussein platform because it's not a trusted platform. You do it through your bank. You do it through PayPal. But you forget that bank and PayPal actually get hacked quite a bit. And you, even though you trust them, but a bank can literally wipe out all the money that you have with them right now uh, without recourse. So let's say right now in COVID times where you can't go to the bank and all of it is online. Let's say your bank right now, uh, let's choose a small bank. Uh, it, it doesn't bank, of, to me. bank of Hussein. Bank of Hussein, let's say. It chooses to, you know, uh, close your close your account, and uh, you're now all, you're stuck calling them, and they're not answering a call. What recourse do you have? You had a hundred thousand dollars in their bank account, in your bank account there, and it's gone. So you have no recourse. So these are this is the challenge of centralized systems that it gives too much control for a few people. Whereas decentralized systems, what happens? Number one, you have a, a large group of people who believe in or who back that money. Right now, if your government, let's say the US government or the Canadian government has, a, has bad leadership and they make different choices and the value of money goes down, like the Venezuelan money. And suddenly you had all this money and suddenly that money is worthless. You can't protect against that. Whereas if you look at Bitcoin, for example, it's, there's a ton of people that are using it and their money value is, is separated from, let's say, the ability of a few people to manipulate it or change it. Nobody can change now Bitcoin. Nobody controls Bitcoin, okay? Even if the community of developers right now that are responsible combine together, they can't change the system. Even if Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, we find out who he is, who is the inventor of Bitcoin, who we, who we don't know who he is, it's a pseudonym for someone or a group of people, came out right now and say, I want to change Bitcoin to this. Nobody would listen to him because the power is not with him, the power is with the people who run the code on their machines. So that decentralized power is very powerful. So it gives power to the, to the uh, currency. And once the transaction happens, if you give me your Bitcoin address, I have my Bitcoin address and I send it to you, it's sent, done. There's no recourse. I can't, if I send you money through my bank and I call my bank and say, hey, uh, I actually sent money to, to um, Joel and it, it turned out that he's, he's defrauded me, he didn't send me the, the stuff. The bank will take the money back. <laughs> So, I mean, this is just a simple example, but there are so many complex layers that you build on it with code. So turning contractual agreements into code is a very powerful idea. We call them smart contracts. Basically, it's taking any agreement that we have as human agreement and trying to turn it into code that executes when certain conditions are met. So you do one, two, X, one, one, two, three, X, Y, Z get executed. So that's a very powerful idea and moving to a community where we don't have to, let's say there's this COVID-19 uh, disaster. And let's say we agree that it's by law that if a certain uh, problem happens of this scale and people, let's say you have, uh, let's say, personal insurance, uh, what's per PI they call it or something like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Personal insurance and you're owed, you don't have to wait until the government convenes, you know, and uh, like it's automatic. You get fired from a job and that's logged in by your company. Automatically, the money comes from the government and let's say it goes to your bank account, for example. 
You don't have to apply, prove anything. All of the go through that process. It's just written in code and gets executed once certain conditions are met. So that's, this is the kind of thing, uh, for example, the distribution, the, the supply chain that we have right now and the challenges we have with that. If we had blockchain applied supply chain, we know exactly how many rolls of toilet paper are on the way, <laughs> uh, who's buying them, how it's being sold, all of that. And we would have no worries about, is there supply chain? We wouldn't have somebody had to stand on a podium just to ensure that they spoke to the heads of, you know, the, the supermarkets and there is enough in supply chain. It will be transparent. You can look at the supply chain and say, oh, we have enough supply chain for the next eight months. And it's just coming and it's going to arrive at this date, this date, this date. So it sounds like a lot of the problems that we're facing now with, yes, shortages of, of items like, um, yeah, like toilet paper that you're mentioning, um, <coughs> people uh, accessing government funds. That, can all that stuff be solved if blockchain is put in place? I would say blockchain al allows the infrastructure for it to be solved. <coughs> the solutions are there. It's just that because it relies a lot on human uh, factors and on old way, even on the software and the infrastructure that exists right now is supervised by humans. If you think about it, humans are controlled by emotions, fear, fear for your job, fear for, you know, like for example, you, you might delay telling your boss about a bad news, mm. which delays them making a decision, which delays and, and rack up from that software doesn't care. Something happens, and if it's in the software that is going to execute based on these, let's say, metrics, it executes. There's no delay. There's, so it's just turning things into software. And what blockchain is, <coughs> excuse me, what blockchain gives you, it gives you the infrastructure where you can trust these things will execute because the manipulation is harder because of the decentralized ability. So a centralized system is is that doesn't mean that decentralized system cannot be compromised, but it's less likely to be compromised. If you can definitely build that software within a centralized system, but it's less, more likely to be compromised and penetrated and having people, you know, stop it. <coughs> so I think that's, that's the key, the difference. And that's what blockchain enables. It's not that blockchain will solve that. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges is a lot of people that didn't understand the technology from the start thought, oh, this is going to solve all of it. Just like they think right now, AI will solve anything. You know, nothing, the technology is just a way to accelerate, confirm, power, empower, enable certain elements. You as a human being or a group of human beings need to take those decisions and need to build and use that technology in a way that will make that ha happen. So that's why the reason why I want to teach people about that because with blockchain, you're more capable of, if you understand it, you can apply it. Blockchain is, is a hard technology to implement but it's not a hard technology to use. It's not hard to use Bitcoin. It requires definitely a certain understanding different than the, how we used to understand the world, but we're not asking you to design a blockchain system, but you need to know enough to actually use it and not be afraid of it. Um, so in the blockchain companies, how are you seeing content marketing being used? For, for a long time, uh, it was one of the key elements because uh, when a new technology or emerging technology uh, arrives to the scene, uh, 
the biggest thing is education. How do you educate people? So content is a, is the key. I don't think I don't see, think I've seen any blockchain company succeed without relying on content marketing as a key. And the, of course, because of the um, a lot of the challenges that came with a new technology and lack of understanding, a lot of the scams that came with it, just like the dot com, let's say bubble, where we had a lot of scams as well, a lot of bad ideas. The same thing happened with blockchain. Um, uh, the challenge is we, it came at a time where there is more awareness and you can reach out to more people. So um, they found the need to educate people. They have to educate people about what they do, how they do it. So content is the, definitely the, the core vehicle to, to uh, kind of inform people about that and educate people. So content took center stage. And uh, with the scams, uh, a lot of platforms uh, banned advertising for anything that has to do with blockchain or crypto uh, currency or crypto, let's say, anything that has to do with crypto, uh, the crypto space. Uh, sometimes blockchain crypto is kind of uh, interchangeable. It's not. but Lumped into each other yeah. with each other, right? Yeah. yeah, but a lot of people use them interchangeably. Uh, so th- a lot of the challenge is how do you, how do you beat that if, if you can't advertise? and you can't reach people in certain ways, the remainder is, let's say, communities, uh, education, content, content in many different forms, video, uh, you know, written, uh, infographics, and content delivered to presentations and, uh, and events. So content took center stage when it comes to, uh, let's say, the blockchain and any emerging technologies, mainly because also it's expensive to advertise and especially for an emerging technology, it's not guaranteed that everybody will jump in. Uh, so you, you'll be wasting your advertising dollars. Awesome. All right. So I asked this question to all my guests. What is, and I, I think I know the answer, but you might surprise me. What is one book? I mean, you've, yeah, you've said that you've read so many books, hundreds of books on all sorts of subjects. What is the book that has influenced you the most in your life? The book that influenced me the most in my life is um, I would say conversation. Is it conversation or conversations with God? Mm, okay. Does I did not expect you? that. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I thought you were going to say Lean Startup for sure. Um, it didn't in the sense that it, it, that's, that's a part of, definitely is one of the top books I would recommend. Uh, but Conversations with God is the book that influenced me the most because the time that it came with and it changes my relationship to that part. I grew up in, in the Arab world, in Syria. Syria is not a very religious uh, country. But it's still, there's a lot of religious people around that. And Islam, I think, for all the people who are committed Christians, they might relate to that. Religion is a major part of life. And I think the difference with Islam is that Islam also has a legislative and everyday life part of it. So it's not just your relationship with God. It's your, um, a lot of people kind of legislate or like to legislate at least based on Islam and, um, and use it to govern your your morals, your, how you treat others and all of that. So that kind of, you grew up around that. And uh, I was lucky because my parents are not very religious and uh, I didn't know 
what religion I was until I was, I think, fifth uh, grade and my, my religion school, we, we had a religion a teacher in schools ask me, what religion are you? And I, like, well, I don't know what that means. I was in a private school. Uh, it was an Armenian school. I used to go to oh. church with Ar- Armenians. I think it was Roman Catholic. I don't know. It, or I don't know what, what like they, there's a lot of sects there within. So uh, Syria has 15% Christians. So it's part of everyday life. Uh, we have Christian neighborhoods, like basically majority Christians living there and a lot of our friends. So it, it was not like that segregation in the sense like, oh, you know what, you're different. So I, I used to go to church and I didn't know, like, I didn't know what, what, what's that about in the sense that I wasn't that religion was not part of my life as growing up. So that gave me a little bit of pers- perspective in the sense that I wasn't that attached. I didn't grow up in a very religious family. But when I was teenagers in my teenage years, I was looking for the truth. So I started reading. Um, all of the, we were, we're Ismailis, so we're a sect of the Islamic, uh, we're not Sunnis or so. Ismailis are not strict as well in Islam and Islam doesn't like kind of govern every part of your life. But, um, and we believe there's a man that represents God here. So it's very close to, <laughs> to how Christians think. Um, and so I started researching, I started learning about, uh, you know, religion and trying to find the truth and trying to find salvation, if you wish. I think that's the time when people look for that. So I, I started with Islam, read, uh, you know, uh, the Bible or one of the Bibles that I had a hand. We had the Bible at home and we had also the, the Torah. Yeah. So the, I read, I read those kind of searching for, and I read the Sunnis, you know, uh, books. And I, I read everything at, by the twenties, by the early twenties, I had kind of, I, I reached a point where I, I didn't want to read anymore. And I didn't want to give time for that because I like reached like, I couldn't find the, the truth, um, the ultimate truth, because that's what I was looking for. I was looking, where's the ultimate truth? I want to be the, I want to be part of those people who are saved and who are, who know the way and that kind of thing. And uh, when I moved to, I think when I moved to Dubai in 2003, 2004, I was introduced to that book. And what it did, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very well-written book first. Like it's, it's fabulous from, from, from how the language kind of, uh, how the language weave into each other. So it's a brilliantly written book and it, it kind of gives uh, a human perspective on the relationship with an entity called God. It, it is, it has, the person who's there is religious. He's not pushing his ideas on you. So it kind of freed me from my past because I kind of left that there and I never touched it in the sense that I'm not going to deal with that because it's not the time, it's not helping me in any way. So I left it. But that kind of was the resolution and I kind of was in home, at home with my relationship with God, which is, I don't want the relationship with God <laughs> kind of thing. So it was my path, even though a lot of people would probably take a different path with it, which is kind of get closer to God. For me, I became more secular after that. But it, uh, it was a brilliantly written book, fabulous time. It, it has three parts, great relationship. Uh, and, and it's not about God in particular. It's about how human beings thinks about, think about all of the elements that they pass in their lives, like their relationship, our relationship with war, with each other, how we think about money, how we think. That's why I think the brilliance of that book. So it's a brilliant, brilliant book. I highly recommend it to read it. 
Um, but yeah, that's my complex relationship and why it's the most influential book because at the time when it came, kind of gave me that permission to go do whatever I want and, and kind of be at peace with whatever my search was. Um, and that's why I'm kind of a weird person when it comes to talking about religion. And because uh, I defend people's right to kind of um, believe in religion, but I also uh, stand against the stupidity in anything, whether it's religion or anything, against any religion doing that. So people can't, don't know where to put me. Um, and that's it's because of my upbringing and the, the kind of reading that I had in many different ways. And who's the author? Uh, the author is Neil Donald Walsh. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you, Hussein, for being on this show. I appreciate your time. Where can people find you? You can find me, search Hussein Halak on Google. You'll find a ton of stuff about me. Uh, I'm awesome, famous. No, I'm just joking. You'll find probably, I, I used to have a website, HusseinHalak.com, but I think right now I haven't paid attention to it, so it's, it's off or something. Uh, find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, HH Unleashed, if you search HH Unleashed. Um, I think it's the best place to find me. Medium, obviously. Uh, so if you go to Medium and find me there, uh, that's probably where you find you can read. I have articles on LinkedIn, Medium. And uh, go to Learn uh, Progress, which is learn.nextdecentrum.com, which is where I curate a lot of the work uh, around startups and uh, uh, emerging technologies and about COVID right now. So <laughs> just okay. because because I'm tired of people spreading stuff that are, that are uh, you know, uh, worthless. I'd like to curate things that, that people can find helpful. And, you know, my belief, uh, my support for science and, uh, and uh, scientific stuff. So, yeah, you can find me anywhere like that. Awesome. And remind us what your book is called and where people will be able to find it. The, uh, it's called Unleash the Startup of You. And, oh, my God, where, where did I put the, uh, the link? <laughs> for one second what is it unleash unleash the book what is it you know what i'll give you that, that's we'll put it we'll put it in the show notes and it'll yeah, be exactly exactly it'll be available on amazon i'm assuming once i launched it i have no idea so this is the part of me right now i'm validating the idea actually if you go to my did i publish it on linkedin i think i published it on medium there is the search for eldorado on medium and there i have the link to my book which is what I should look for right now. But there I have the link to my book and probably is going to be there. You can sign up for early release in the sense that you're interested in, in hearing about it. And I'll share with you the chapters of the book as they're being written. So yeah, feel free to do that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Hussein. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, had a, had a great fun. Yeah. Great questions as always. You're, you're amazing. At, uh, I've, I, the things I spoke about here, I haven't spoken, most of them, I would say 80% of them I haven't spoken about uh, before. So that's, uh, that's, that's an accomplishment for, for having a conversation with me. Thanks Thank for you. that. Thank you. Have a good fun. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Publishing for Profit. Please like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.